In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, in August 2019, last year, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, you may know them as the ELCA, had their Synod Convention. Now, a Synod Convention is when all of the churches within a church body, a denomination, send delegates or representatives to gather together. And they gather together to discuss matters happening within the church body to make motions and to vote on things. So in last year's convention, the ELCA invited numerous leaders from other religions on stage while they proposed a resolution called the Declaration of Interreligious Commitment. And in that statement, in lines 639 and 640, it says this, that we must be careful of claiming to know God's judgments regarding another religion. In other words, they were arguing that we don't really know what God says about himself or about Christ or about salvation, so we can't really know which religion is true or false. Therefore, there may be salvation outside of and apart from Christ. And so that means we can't say that other religions, beliefs, or faiths are false. So in attendance, there was a layman by the name of Zachary Johnson. And when this declaration of interreligious commitment came up for discussion, he went up to the microphone and he said this. It's a little long, so bear with me. It says this. He said, we have a clear statement from Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. We do Therefore, have a basis to know God's views on religions that do not require faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son. And then he says, In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do we as Lutherans need to be careful about proclaiming this message? No. Do we need to respect, love, and care for non-Christians? Absolutely, yes. I submit that the best way to love and care for our neighbors is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because the language I seek to strike is completely inconsistent with the gospel, I move to remove it from the declaration. I would urge this assembly to repudiate and repent of any false teachings. Well, what happened? They didn't strike the language and they didn't accept his argument. And in fact, a woman pastor, that is a woman who thinks she's a pastor, spoke against him saying, frankly, I'm embarrassed that we're even having this conversation right now in front of all of our interfaith guests. And then they cut off all the debate on the amendment. The motion that Zachary Johnson made was voted down and the ELCA voted in favor of this by 97.48%. Immediately after, Zachary faced a backlash on social media calling him unloving, bigoted, hateful, ignorant, and the like. And that's just from what I've seen. Now, the reason this happened is not because they don't like Zachary Johnson or they rejected him. No one there really knew him really, his personality, his likes or dislikes or anything else about him, the ELCA rejected his words because 
they rejected Jesus' words. They rejected him because they rejected Christ. They didn't want to know him because they didn't know God, the Father, and his Christ. They hated Zachary because they hated Jesus first. And this, dear saints, is persecution. You see, being persecuted as a Christian doesn't only mean being hit in the head with rocks or tarred and feathered or being whipped and beaten. Being persecuted means being dismissed or rejected and mocked by the world for bearing the name of Christ and clinging to the truth of his word. Now, in fact, this is exactly how persecution begins. Being persecuted doesn't all of a sudden begin with the killing of Christians. It begins by shutting them down, by ridiculing them, embarrassing them, not allowing them to speak, not allowing there to be discussion and rejecting them. It begins by teaching them to keep their mouths closed, to not speak up, to, not, to, to listen to everyone else's opinion, but never being able to give their own opinion. And sadly, Christians have given in to this spirit of fear and timidity. And then, once the world has had enough of it, when they find that they can't get you to be silent about the truth, then they resort to murder. That's how Jesus tells us it happens here in John chapter 16. He says, first, they shall put you out of the synagogues. And then he says, yes, the time is coming. That is, it, it's coming, it's sequential, it's coming afterward. The time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he gives service to God. So you see that persecution begins first with exclusion and then grows into execution. So I want you to, I, I, I want to hone in specifically and I want you to focus specifically on Jesus' words here where he says, Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he does God's work. So did you catch that? Those who persecute you will not just do it reluctantly. They're not embarrassed of what they're doing. No, in fact, Jesus says that when they persecute you, they will think they are doing good, a good work. They think that they're making the world a better place. When they get rid of you in the workplace, when they kick you out of your group of friends, when, they, when your family members exclude you from their homes, when denominations and synods and districts will come after you for preaching the truth or correcting those who, who teach error, they will think they are doing what is good and helpful. They think that what they're doing is what God would have them do. They think they are making the workplace, their friends, their family, their church more loving, more tolerant, and better for the world. You see that they won't just persecute you. They do it proudly. It is a virtue. This is the only way they know how to make the world a better place. For someone to think that they are doing a good work in persecuting Christians it means that they first have to convince themselves that we Christians are dangerous and harmful to people and that we are doing evil and terrible things. So let me give you an example of, the, of, of how this is true. So take foster care, for instance. All across the country, Christian foster parents are being denied children because they simply believe that a boy is a boy a girl is a girl, 
and that men are to love and marry women and that women are to love and marry men. Now, this is saying nothing of their capability, not saying that the parents uh, looking at their finances, what they can do. Uh, It's not saying that the parents would even correct the child or change anything about the child. Just the simple fact that they hold this opinion, that they have that in mind, in their heart, they are being denied the ability to care for these children. And so the world thinks that this is harmful. It is evil. It is wicked. It is unloving to do. You cannot have this opinion. You cannot think this way. You cannot speak this way. It's evil. It's wrong. It's hazardous to the world. They think that Christian foster parents are dangerous for children. They think that a Christian husband and wife who uphold God's word and creation are evil. They're not fit to be parents. They're not fit to take care of children. And Jesus says, they will do these things to you because they don't know me. Now, we don't just see this in the world. Like the account I told you at the beginning of the sermon, this is happening inside the church. Take, for example, the entire issue of women's ordination. So our church says what the Bible says concerning women pastors. The Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And so what do we do? We do exactly as those words say, as God has caused them to be written. What did God say? We follow his word and we recognize that Jesus is the one who makes pastors, not us. We don't make pastors, God does. And he has chosen to make men leaders and pastors of the church according to his wisdom. He knows more than we do and he told us what to do. Now, this is so clear and obvious. It's in black and white, literally, in the scriptures. But women who are serving as pastors in the church will say that they are doing a good work and that we are being sinful and judgmental and hateful and intolerant and sexist. They are saying we discriminate against women all because we hold to what the Lord says. They think they're doing something better something good for God. And Jesus says, they will do these things to you because they don't know me. Now take, for example, those who support the practice of abortion. What do they say? They call it pro-choice and they say that they're caring for a woman's health. They think they're doing good. They think they're being helpful and making the world a better place by killing a baby. Now, they think they're doing a good work, but what they're really doing is committing murder. And so when we call this out and when we say, well, God says you shall not murder, they say, then you don't care about women. You are controlling. You are hurting and harming women and society. You are the problem with this society. You are suppressing women. They call what they do good And what we say, evil. And Jesus says, they will do these things to you because they don't know me. Look at the LGBTQ uh, movement. Uh, What do they say? They say that they're being tolerant and loving. They're making the world a better and more welcoming place. 
They say that a man who denies his God-given masculinity and mutilates himself to look like and pretend to be a woman is a good thing. They do this not only to themselves, but now also to their children. And they call it brave and courageous. And men who burn with passion for other men invoke the name of God, saying that God made me this way. They live contrary to God's word, to the clear words that he said, and they think they are doing good. And this isn't just in the world. This is in the church too. But what they're really doing is going against nature, going against creation, sinning against their own bodies, despising the God who made them. And when we see this, we simply say what God says in 1 Corinthians 16, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and so on, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So to say this means that you are hateful, intolerant, unloving, and bigoted. The world calls what what they do, and they call their sin, good. But the culture will cancel you if you speak anything against the false god of homosexuality or today's sexuality. Jesus says they will do these things to you because they don't know me. This persecution happens not only outside in the world, but also right now within the church. And Jesus says, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think he is doing a service for God. Now, you might say, and I've heard this before, okay, pastor, calm down here. That's not a big deal. It's not that bad. Look, we're all fine. There's never, in fact, there has never been anyone, to my knowledge, in the United States killed for being a Christian. In all its history, there has never been a martyrdom in the United States for being a Christian. So this stuff about killing Christians is old stuff, stuff that happened hundreds of years ago, things that happened in the Colosseum with the Romans and all that sort of stuff. That's long gone. People are just, they're just giving us a hard time. We're fine now. Well, I ask, are we? That's the question. Is what Jesus said happening right now? Are we there yet? Is this true? Are we Christians being martyred, murdered for the faith right now as we speak? The answer is absolutely yes. This is happening right now as we speak. No, not in the United States, at least right now. But since when do we identify ourselves, Christians, the church, geographically by the border of the United States? Since when have we Christians cut ourselves off from one another in the world? Since when have we Christians isolated ourselves from others who profess faith in the Lord and say that they're not uh, uh, children of God as well? We are not Americans first and Christians second. We are Christians first. Our citizenship 
is neither chiefly nor primarily in the United States of America. We are citizens of another country, citizens of another world, citizens of heaven. We are baptized and we bear the name of Christ first and foremost. And so that means we stand closer to our Christian brothers and sisters who are thousands of miles away in China, in Iraq, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Brazil, in the Dominican Republic, in Spain, than we do to our unbelieving neighbors who live right next door. So I ask the question again, are we being persecuted and martyred for faith in Christ? Absolutely, we are. We Christians are being persecuted and martyred more so now than ever. It's getting worse by the decade. There is active, active persecution in 40 different countries. There are Christians in prisons and in dungeons in dozens of different countries. There are Christians and pastors who are suffering in prison right now right now, this very morning, and whose only hope, whose only hope of getting out of that prison is by dying. So yes, this is happening to us. Jesus' words are true. What Jesus says here today is real. So the question I think you might be asking is this. Could it come to you here in the States? And will it? And once again, the answer is yes. When? I don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 20 years. It could be in 200 years. We, the, the thing is, we oftentimes try to predict when these sort of things are going to f- fall upon us. But we can't. People have been saying this for the past 100 years or more. Oh, just wait. Just give it another 20 or 30 years. Then persecution will come. Just wait another decade. Just wait a few more years and it's going to happen. But here's the thing. You can't predict persecution. It comes when it comes. And when it comes, it comes as a surprise. Look, the reason so many Christians have been persecuted is because it came upon them overnight, like a trap. They couldn't get away. They couldn't run away. They couldn't flee from it. And they were forced to make a confession of the faith and lay their lives down for the gospel. No Christian willingly stays if they know persecution is heading their way. You're free to leave unless you're the pastor. If you are the pastor, then you stay preaching the word of God until they kill you. But for Christians, they flee. And so the reason persecution is successful is precisely because it comes so suddenly in a moment. One day things are fine, the next day it's not. And so this means that you should always be prepared to be persecuted for the faith. You should always be prepared to face hardship and deal with the real possibility that you may join the long list of saints who have been persecuted for the name of Jesus around the world right now. It may happen tomorrow. It may not. But you need to be ready at all times and keep making a good confession of the faith. 
Now, I don't want to end this sermon with just doom and gloom because that's not what Jesus does. He does not end in this way. He does not just give us uh, something to be afraid of, but he gives us comfort even in these very words that he speaks to us here today in John chapter 15 and 16. From what I could surmise here in the text, I could count three chief comforts in Jesus' words here today. There are three things that he says that give us comfort in the midst of persecution. And the first comfort is this. Jesus says, this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled, that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. So Jesus is speaking here of himself. He was rejected and despised unto death on the cross without a cause. That means he was innocent. He was good. He was loving. And yet the world hated him. And this is a comfort for you when the world hates you. When they consider you to be evil and ugly and unloving and disgusting. The Lord says of you what is true of himself. They hate you without cause. They hate you not because you are evil, but they hate you because of me. And so that's the first comfort. The world may consider you evil. They do consider you evil. But God does not. He does not consider you dangerous or unloving or bigoted or sexist or wicked. The world says this about you, but Jesus does not have this opinion of you. He speaks the opposite. He is pleased with you. He loves you. He considers you his child. He sees you as good, as holy, as faithful, as righteous, and without spot or blemish. I want to explain something here by way of anecdote so it kind of settles in your mind and so you understand this. In my short time of being a pastor, just coming up on six years here at the end of July, I've realized a lot of my shortcomings. It's obvious to me. And I know how often I fail. I know what I need to work on and I know a number of other things. And I know these failures of mine bother people (laughs) and they bother me too. I'm constantly working on them, trying to get better. Now, throughout the years, everyone, I have to say, has been patient and kind with me and they have borne these burdens with me. They've been patient and loving and covering my faults. It's been a a wonderful thing. I couldn't, couldn't have asked for anything better. Now, the point I'm making is this. What I found is that people will be patient with me in these things, in my shortcomings, in in my failures, in my uh, uh, troubles. They will be patient with me in these things, but they will not be patient or react kindly to the word of God. You see, I've never had people storm out or yell at me or slander me or call me hateful and unloving because I was disorganized or late. But 
They have stormed out, yelled, gossiped, been rude, written nasty letters, lied about me, and left the church because of the word of God. By preaching the word of God to them, by saying, look, look, you need to repent, or you need to confess your sins, or you need to come back to church, or you need to stop living together. You need to go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. You need to go make things right and live peaceably with one another. Or anything from the Bible, reading anything from the Bible. I've been called almost every name in the book. And I know that this has happened to some of you. And I know it because I've seen it and you've told me. You've endured it from friends and family members. And it's not because you are evil. It's not because you're not a good person. It's because it is God's word that you are speaking. And you know what Jesus says to this? Do you know? Do you know what Jesus says to the fact that they slander you and mock you and put you down? Jesus says, yeah, that's the way they talk to me too. But don't give up. They're only doing these things because you are mine. So when these things happen to you, don't get discouraged. You are being joined to the suffering of Christ, which is a holy and blessed thing. Remember what happened to the apostles when they preached the word of God. They were flogged and beaten. And they left rejoicing because they knew it was an honor, a privilege that God would consider them worthy enough to suffer for his name's sake. The same is true for you. It is an honor and a privilege for you that God would consider you worthy enough to suffer for his name's sake. Okay, so that's the first comfort. The second comfort that Jesus gives is this. He says that it will happen. He says, but these things I've told you that when the time has come, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, how is this comforting? It's comforting because Jesus told us it would happen before it happens. And when we see it happen, that means we know that his word is true. It means that he has told us and prophesied to us the things that are true. And that means that if what he said about our persecution is true, then that means that what he says about our salvation is true. If what he said about our suffering is true, then what he said about his suffering is true, namely that through it he has forgiven all of our sins It means that his death on the cross for our salvation is also true. It means that the fact that God is no longer angry with us is true. It means that the fact that he builds us a mansion in the heavens is true. That he will wipe away our tears is true. That he will crown us with everlasting life is true. That he will never leave us nor forsake us is true. When we see this persecution all around us, it means that his word is coming to pass. You are seeing it come to life. You're seeing his prophecy come true. And so when these things begin to take place, you don't bury your head in the sand. You lift up your head knowing that your redemption is drawing near. When this happens, we will be filled with courage 
and with hope. And the third and the final comfort is this. Jesus says, And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father and they have not known me. Well, what's the comfort here? Well, the world will do this to you because they don't know the Father and they don't know Christ. And the comfort is in the inference here, in what Jesus implies, in the opposite of these words. The world does this to you because you know the Father and because you know Jesus. And do you know the Father because the Father knows you? And you know Jesus because he knows you and he sees you and he is with you and he cares for you and he loves you and he will not let any persecution, tribulation, trouble, or even death take you away from him. The world's weapons may be sharp, but the only thing those weapons can do is usher in your eternal life, the life that Christ freely gives you. And so as we close this Easter season today, the final Sunday of Easter, remember the words of Psalm 27, the intro for today. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So dear saints, keep hearing the word of God. Keep speaking it. Don't you for a moment be bashful or ashamed of the gospel. Don't be timid or afraid. Keep confessing the faith day in and day out. Don't let a little pain or discomfort dissuade you from the truth. Don't let anything the world says about you distract you from what God says about you. His word is true and his opinion of you matters more than anything. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth has come upon you in his word, so testify to the truth. Speak God's word boldly, knowing that God delights in you, that he loves you, and that he will save you from death and the grave. Amen. Before closing, listen to the words of this hymn. And for thy gospel, let us dare to sacrifice all treasure. Teach us to bear thy blessed cross and to find in thee all pleasure. O grant us steadfastness in joy and in distress, lest we, Lord, thee forsake. Let us by grace partake of endless joy and gladness. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.